Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. Lots of things going on this week. We had the computer electronics show, which was lots and lots of devices. Uh, particularly different kinds of monitors all over the place. And it was an interesting show. AI is going into all kinds of devices. Have you ever been to that show? No. Never been to that show. You want to go? Yeah, someday I may go. Take me. Okay. It could be, <laughs> it, it, it could be nice. But the, uh, but the most important thing at the Computer Electronics Show, I cannot even talk about on the air. Why not? Because they have allowed a whole class of devices which I might call for women's health. Okay. And I can't really go into it any further. And that was a big breakthrough there in that they allowed those devices <laughs> for the first time at the Computer Electronics Show, and one of the devices won top awards. Would we say health in quotes, maybe? Yes, health in quotes. Ah. Maybe health and happiness. <laughs> I think you've let the cat out of the bag. So that so that to was speak. that was probably the most significant breakthrough there uh, at the computer electronics show, and uh, and they and these devices made quite a splash at the at the event, um, and the, the and of course there was uh, of course all the other things going on. There was this ransomware attack on Travelex. Uh, you know, countries were shutting down the internet. Mm-hmm. And there's a critical security warning for Foxfire. It's a uh, it's a, a major warning came out. I want to make certain you get that. There's another device at Computer Electronics Show I'll talk about. It makes water out of air. What? It's extremely it makes water it, out of air. Yeah, okay. it just it condenses the water from the All air, right. and it's uh, extremely efficient. And it's a very good idea. It got it got best in show. So. Wow. I can talk about that device on the air. Thank goodness, because this would be an awfully quiet show if you had nothing That's we could right. talk about. And there's another big thing. Instead of the Google browser being default on the Android device in Europe, mm-hmm. the search engine DuckDuckGo is going to be on there. Have you ever used DuckDuckGo, I have Go, not, Jim? but we've talked about it before. Yeah, so DuckDuckGo is going to be available for people. in, uh, And you can, you can check it out, Jim. It's, it's a nice search engine. I didn't mind, uh, didn't mind using that at all. And Verizon has finally changed their plans because so many people have dropped their service. Yeah, to, uh, they have so many. They lost seventy thousand customers last year to wow. cord cutting, and I was one of them. And uh, I'm quite happy that I've cut the cord. Good. And this week we're going to feature Peter Kirstein. He's the British scientist who played a role in the creation of the internet, and he's recognized as father of the European internet. Aha. Uh-huh. 
And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. He's two for 2020, by yes, the way. he's doing very. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Got a long email from Bob. Several emails from Bob. I'm just gonna. I just excerpt Condense one of them. them yes. Yeah, I said, "Hi guys, I'm an avid Tech Talk radio enthusiast. I've listened for many years. I've encouraged my friends and family to listen as well." This is not because I'm another physicist. He's a physicist. That's why I like him. Yeah, of course Interested you in technology and a Canadian as well. I find the show very valuable and a fun way to learn about technology. I even, get this, Jim, I even like the best of shows that Jim works so hard to put together. Well, that's, that's very kind <laughs> of you to say. And we, we do work hard. We I try to keep them relevant and interesting and fun. I still find that I learn something even from the repeats, and I always take notes. Good. Anyway, I heard Dr. Schertz complaining about the difficulty of finding people for profiles in IT. It is. I've done 450, so I'm always looking. Yes. So here are a few. And, um, and Bob in Maryland, he knew nine people personally, so he wrote about these nine. Mil- I'll, just, I'll just list a couple. Milton Moore was one of the technicians in the group that invented transistors, and he went on to become CEO of TRW. Peter Shore was the father of quantum computing. He found you, too, and their last names rhyme. More yeah, and sure. More and sure. That is, that. Yeah, you got Claude Shannon, father of information technology. We've featured Claude before. And, of course, the Unix guys, Carrington, Pike, and Ritchie. I did Pike that and Ritchie. That sounds like a law firm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really handle Carrington, but I did Pike, Pike and Ritchie earlier. And Cecil Green, he founded TI. He was at MIT for a while. Steve Wolfram, creator of Mathematica. We've featured Steve before. And... Uh, Cleve Moeller, creator of MATLAB. I've never done him. So this, these are very good uh, yeah. suggestions. Uh, that gets uh, you through March. <laughs> it'll get me through March, yeah. And then it goes on to say, good luck, and I really do listen to the programs. A faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Thank you, Bob. Okay, we got an email from Lynn in Cleveland, Ohio. Dear Tech Doc, I have a casual friend on Facebook who started leaving hateful comments on wow. my posts after he found out that my politics were different than his. This is the problem on Facebook. People get into these huge political fights. Yeah, they should just stay out of politics on Facebook. It just should be for connection. It got so bad that I eventually got mad enough to block him. Mm. But now I'm having second thoughts about blocking him. And the reason I blocked him, I just, I just, instead of unfriending him, is that I wanted to make sure he wouldn't be able to see my posts. Okay. Now my question is, uh, if I unblock him. But he's not a friend. Will he be able to see my posts? You know, because I'll I'll do that. But I just want him to see all my political posts because he just he just rants and raves about it. Well, Lynn, it all depends on the privacy level you selected for your posts. <clears throat> when you block somebody, it completely severs the friendship. They can't see anything. If you unblock them, he'll be able to see any posts that are listed as public. Okay, so if you want to be absolutely certain that this person never sees any of your posts after you unblock him. You start posting everything at the privacy level of friends. So since he's not a friend, he won't be able to see it. Uh And then you can also retroactively change that privacy setting for all prior postings. So what you do if you're in the – you log into your Facebook account on your computer, click on the down arrow located on the right side of the blue bar at the top of the Facebook window, click on settings, click on privacy – then click on who can see your future posts and change it to friends. And then you click limit the audience you post that you've shared with friends of friends or public. So you can, you can also not even allow friends of friends to see it. And finally, the last thing you check is limit 
apply this limit to past posts, and it goes back and retroactively handles it all. If you do that, you can unblock him, but he won't see any of your posts that are marked for friends. He'll only see your public posts. So you can make all your political statements for friends and your birthday photos for anybody, and then maybe that would work. We got an email from Steve in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I want a Bluetooth speaker in a contest, and I'd like to use it with my desktop computer, <clears throat> but my computer doesn't have Bluetooth. Is there an easy and cheap way to connect the speaker to my computer? For example, I could add a Bluetooth adapter card to my PC, Steve in Fairfax. Well, the answer is yes, you can. Uh, you can connect it quite easily to... Uh, to all of to to your computer. Now, if you're if the speaker has an auxiliary input jack, you can probably just plug it into the, your uh, your computer. So many Bluetooth speakers will have a uh, an input jack, and you can connect it directly via wire and not even use Bluetooth. Now, if it only connects via Bluetooth, then what I would recommend is you get a USB Bluetooth dongle, and they're you know they're eight to fourteen dollars. You plug it into US. B port, install the driver, and then all of a sudden, bingo, you can connect to a USB uh, speaker. You can go to Amazon, and they're just, I didn't, I'm not recommending a particular one. There's so many of them, but they're eight to fourteen dollars. Get get one that's got a good, uh, good, you know, good, good, good reviews, and make certain to also get Bluetooth 4.0, and then you'll be good to go. We got an email from Travis in Louisville. Dear Tech Talk, I would like to create a new emoji to remind people about global warming. Okay. I would like the um, an emoji of the earth with sweat coming down from her forehead. <laughs> <laughs> now, who approves emoji? Can the general public submit a, a, a suggestion for a future emoji? I'd love to move forward with idea, move forward with this idea, Travis in Louisville, Kentucky. I believe it's the Federal Bureau of Emoji, the FBE, that's FBE. in charge of that. Yes. Now, see, Jim, you could make an emoji of like uh, a, of like a radio host, you know, with a with a microphone. You wouldn't want to see it though. Or you could, or you could have like a a, a traffic reporter where you have sitting on a car or something. You could make something really. Really Standing impressive. Standing in the middle of the beltway, right? That's right. You make something really impressive. Okay, this is the thing, um, Travis. Anybody can think up and, and submit an emoji. An emoji is an official and universal method of communication. It started back in 2010, by the way, Travis. This was when emoji was added to Unicode, the global standard for encoding and text in computing systems. Now, let me just have a, a sidebar. Sidebar, here. yes. Okay, it used to be. That when you would encode, say, letters and numbers, you had an 8-bit address space, and that was the old ASCII code. You had 8 bits, and you didn't have enough options to have, say, the Chinese alphabet or all the Chinese characters. So in order to allow you to have more and more letters, you needed to expand the address space assigned to each letter. And so they went from 8 bits to 16 bits. And so now in Unicode... Every character is expressed as a 16-bit number, binary number. So that's Unicode. Okay, now I'm back from the aside. Back from so the, when by they, the way, that was our first aside of 2020. Yes, it was. So naturally, there would be a Unicode consortium. Mm. And the Unicode consortium is a, is a body that's responsible for maintaining the Unicode. What, what digital signatures apply to what? Characters. You know, I've wondered about this because depend, uh, regardless as to what device you have, the uh-huh. emojis are universal. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And so the 
Unicode Consortium, Jim. I just just remember so that. So the FBE, it doesn't really? No, the no, Federal no, Bureau no, of Emojis? No. So when you go to cocktail party tonight, you can talk about the Unicode, Unicode, Unicode Consortium, and you'll get the dip. Left chip, alone. You'll get the chips and dip all to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Now, back in 2010, a team of engineers from Google and Apple applied to the Unicode Consortium to standardize emoji. So this is when it goes back to the very beginning, and Google and Apple came up with the original emojis that were approved by the Unicode Consortium. Now, every year, the Unicode Consortium accepts proposals for new emoji. Did you know this, Jim? I did not know that. So after a comprehensive screening, the best proposals will be then approved and turned into emoji and released to the public. Now, the Consortium considers, considers many factors. Compatibility. Is the emoji, emoji widely used in other social media platforms? If it is, chances are good that it will be, it will be accepted into Unicode. Expected usage level. How many people are going to use this emoji? Like, you know, like how many people Like would, the traffic reporter emoji. Yeah, how many would use the traffic reporter Not emoji? Not many. Well, you, you never know. There could be a lot of people that just dream of being a traffic reporter. I doubt it. And then distinctiveness. We're looking. Is the potential emoji, does it have a distinct visual look? When somebody looks at it, they can tell exactly what it is, like the earth sweating mm-hmm. for global warming. Now, once you find a great idea that covers all these factors, it's time to make a proposal. So you go to unicode.org to the proposal section, and you go to something called emoji proposal form, and you fill it out and submit it. So, Travis, you can submit your emoji for global warming. This is news. I had no idea. You know, this is interesting. It's very, you know, it's fascinating, yes. I don't know anybody that's actually submitted an, an emoji before, Jim. But I wonder know, how you would actually go about doing the artwork to make the emoji. Well, you, you, you'd have to do that. So you'd have to team up with an artist. And then, and then you could submit it. But a, you'd have to turn it into code somehow, wouldn't no, you? No, no, you don't turn You just sent the picture in. You just, oh, I could do that all by myself. I they, don't, need, you I don't just, need an artist. You just, I am an artist. Yeah. So you just send in the picture of the emoji, and they and they end up, they end up if they decide they like the emoji, they'll clean up the artwork and they'll make it official. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, you could be the first, the first person in this radio station who's ever submitted an emoji. No, we don't know that. We don't know. We don't that. know. There's a lot of people that work here. I Somebody str- but could I, have. I strongly suspect you would be the first. You might be right. Yeah. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, several of my old some several of my friends from high school have trouble finding me on Facebook because they're searching for my maiden name. It's the problem for oh, women. Yeah, they they a, change their problem. They change their name and then they, they they can't be found. They disappear. In other words, I'd like to find a way that I could that I could display my maiden name. I ha- I have my married name, but then underneath it shows my maiden name. So People could see it. Now, I don't know how to do that. I've been looking around trying to figure out how I can do that. Now, I know it can be done because some of my friends have displayed their maiden name under their full married name, and I I, I just don't know how to do it. Well, well couldn't you I, – I think a lot of married women that I know use it as sort of a middle name, like Jane yeah. Jones Smith, <laughs> not yeah. to call anybody out. I know. Yeah, so that that would be um, that that's a very common way to do it. But mm-hmm. then it's not; it doesn't officially list it as a maiden name. Ah. Facebook allows you to actually list the maiden name. So you you go to your Facebook account, log in, go to your timeline, and then you click the about link, which is about you, mm-hmm. and then you click details about you Ooh. on the left hand, and then it says add a nickname, 
and you could have a birth name or whatever. And then the, click on the nickname box, maiden name. Ah. That would be your nickname. And then type your maiden name into the text box and then click the little box beside that, which says save it. You save the changes. And now your maiden name will be listed as your nickname right below your main name. And so when people search for your maiden name, they'll find it. So that's the best way to do it. Or actually putting it as your middle name is I've seen that done a lot. Mm -hmm. That's even a, that might even be a better way. But this is a way, this is the way Lily wanted it. She didn't want to make it a middle name. She wanted to make it a separate name below her main name. But so when you do that, because people will just go and search, will will the nickname yeah. show up in the search? It will. It, it okay. searches everything. So they can right. search for the maiden name and it would show up. Yeah, it will show up. So there you go. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can watch us do the program here in the new decade by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Peter Thomas Kirsten. Peter Thomas Kirsten was a British computer scientist who played a role in the creation of the Internet. He worked with many guys here in the U.S. during the formative years. He's often recognized as the father of the European Internet. Kirsten was born June 20th, 1933, in Berlin, Germany. His family was Jewish, and they left Germany because of the Nazis. They got out in time, and they went to England. He was educated at Highgate School in North London. He received a Bachelor of Arts from Cambridge University in 1954. He received a Master of Science from Stanford University in 1955 and a Ph.D. from Stanford University in 1957. Both of them were in electrical engineering. He 
Later in life, in 1970, he got a Doctor of Science in Engineering from the University of London. In 1958, he joined the staff of Stanford as a lecturer in microwave engineering. A day later, he joined the European Organization for Nuclear Research, that's CERN, in Geneva, Switzerland, as an accelerator physicist. That's where the, the big accelerators there were. Mi- they- microwave, microwave engineering doesn't mean he can do popcorn without burning it? I think so, yeah. Because it takes a microwave engineer to pull that off. That's right. And, you know, the microwave engineering probably, it, it, ha- it was related to a little bit to the accelerator because they use... They use uh, radiation to accelerate the particles, so probably a lot of that technology could apply to the accelerator. In 1963, Kirsten left CERN. By the way, CERN is where they invented uh, it's where Tim Berners-Lee was when, when he invented the browser in the World Wide Web because he was trying to distribute data and graphics for the scientists at CERN to, so they could share it with each other in the world. And, of course, CERN gave us the CERNets. <laughs> the CERNets, yeah. Oh, we need to, we need oh, to play— Oh, Pi Day. Yeah, we need to play the CERNets on Pi Day. Absolutely. I'll make a note to okay. myself to do that. Now, that, that was actually an aside. Got that was aside with, number two for 2020. It's got Sorry. nothing to do with Kirsten. No, it has nothing. In 1963, Kirsten left CERN to join the European office— of General Electric Corporate Research Center, where he evaluated European scientific research. He left there in 67 to take a post at the University of London Institute of Computer Science, where he served as com- professor of computer communication systems. In 73, he transferred to the University College at London, UCL, and at UCL, he set up the computer science department and served as his head from 1980 to 1994. Now, this is where he did his critical work with the Internet at University College in London, UCL. <clears throat> Kirsten's research group at UCL was one of the first international connections of the ARPANET back in 1973. Re- remember, we were in the ARPANET. They were trying to connect uh, research, in- research uh, uh, labs and universities that were doing research for ARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency, and they were using packet-switched networks. And it started out, the ARPANET initially had four nodes, and his was the first European node Mm -hmm. at UCL. Now, there was also a node at the Norwegian Seismic Array. Now, this was interesting. The Norwegian Seismic Array was used to detect underground nuclear testing that the Soviets might have been doing. And they had it over in Norway. So it was actually a defense application. And they also had Sweden's tandem Earth station for connecting with satellites. So what was interesting here is that he had both unclassified um, unclassified applications on the network as well as some very highly classified applications. So he had to you know, go between the civilian sector and the defense sector. and need to work the politics of that very, very readily. He was very good at politics, actually, as well as technology. They had to connect his node to the U.S., and they did it by satellite, actually. SatNet was a satellite network, SatNet. So he was linked to the nodes in the U.S. by SatNet. Now, back in the very beginning of the Internet, he co-authored a paper with Vint Cerf, one of the fathers of the Internet, and it was one of the most significant technical papers on internetworking. They looked at at delays, queuing, um, congestion in 
internet works, and they, they analyzed it mathematically. Now, his research group at UCL adopted TCPIP in 1982, a year ahead of the ARPANET. TCPIP is, of course, the protocol which is currently used for the internet. And uh, I have to have another aside. Why? Okay. <clears throat> We're just a side crazy I know. Today. So it, it turned out that initially they they had to develop packet switching where you basically, instead of having a connection that connects the two endpoints, like with a telephone line where you, where you have a, a solid connection that goes from point A to point B and you just talk over that solid wire that may be connected together with various switches, that's connection-oriented processing. Um, they went to something else where there was not a dedicated connection between the, the two endpoints. They broke the message up into small packets that had an address on it, and you just launch this address into the network, and it would be routed through the network in any which way that the routing would take it, depending on congestion. And at the other end, the packets would be reassembled into whatever message you were sending. Ah. So that was called packet switching, and you'd reassemble it, and you, if, you're, if, it was, if, you're, if it was a voice message, you'd reassemble it, and you'd, you'd hear the voice. And so that was packet switching network. And they ran these packet switching networks over a lot of different kind of data lines. They had satellite packet switching networks. Out in Hawaii, they had packet radio switching networks. Other ones in the U.S., they were running them over dial-up lines at 2.4 megabits per second. In Europe, they were running them over T1s, which is, a, which is where you, you, you can run multiple messages, multiple conversations over just one uh, one line pair by using time division multiplexing. Those are T1s. It's about 1.5 megabits per second. And so you had all of these different data link structures uh, over which it messaging was done. And so how could you take those networks? You've got network, satellite network. You've got here uh, a dial-up network. You've got a T1 network. How can you take these multiple networks and connect them together into an internet work? So TCPIP <clears throat> allowed that internetworking to connect all these networks so they operated as one and did that with the protocol TCPIP. By the way, that's where the name internet came from. Internetworking, mm -hmm. internet. So he was the first one in Europe to adopt I'm I'm basically connecting at this, you know, England to Europe, although right now they're trying to <laughs> separate separate from Europe. Bre yeah. Brexit. Brexit. So he was the first one to adopt TCPIP in Europe. It was highly political because Europe wanted their own standard for internet working. And they had their own deal and they said, hey, Peter, why don't you go with the local boys? Why are you going to these guys in the U.S.? Go with us. Well, he said t he felt TCPIP was the best solution. That, of course, had been developed by Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf. So he worked with Bob Kahn and Vince Cerf, and he became an evangelist in Europe for TCPIP. And eventually, he prevailed, and TCPIP ended up being the dominant worldwide network for the Internet. And, um, and, and he was highly respected by Vince Cerf. I'd, <clears throat> over the weekend, I looked up a series of panels where Vince Cerf you know, appeared with Peter Kirsten and a lot of other the, of the pioneers, and they talked about the initial politics of all of this. It was very interesting. And Vince said, you know, it's not just technical, it's political. Because there was an issue. You see, if you're connection-oriented, as I said in the beginning, that's controlled by the regulators that control the telephone company, a different group of people. If it's not end-to-end uh, -end, uh, communication, as in telephone, 
But packet switching, it's computer-to-computer data transfer, it falls under another group. So they were constantly trying to say, no, this is not... This is not long-line communication like with uh, telephones. This is something different. So he was always navigating that. He also had another problem. <clears throat> he had the Swedish acoustic array that was looking for nuclear explosions in Russia, which is highly classified. That was running over his network. So he had to navigate all this classification stuff and handle this stuff. So he ended up being a consummate politician and... Vince Cerf gave him the highest praise. He said he was so level-headed, he single-handedly brought the Internet to Europe, Peter Kirsten. He, um, he loved the Internet so much, he gave Queen Elizabeth II her own email address. <laughs> so she came by his lab, and he, and he created an email address for her, and it was HME2, Her Majesty Elizabeth II, H-E-M-E-2. And, uh, and in 1976... The queen, from his lab, sent out her first email, and that was the first email ever sent by a head of state. He was very proud of that. He also led the Silk Project, which developed ways to provide satellite-based Internet access to newly independent states in in, uh, Central Asia and Southern Caucasus. Is that Caucasus, Caucasus? What is that, Jim? I don't know. I yeah I don't even know where that is actually C A U C A S U S Why don't you check that out because Called we need Caucasus could be Southern Caucasus Southern Caucasus Yeah I don't know, really yeah. we we need to Let's check look that up Yeah Let's some, see where that is <clears throat> Why don't you check that out while I'm going on Now he received the SIGCOM award for a lifetime achievement in 1999 for his contributions to the practical understanding of large scale networks using international test beds, because he was really running a major international test bed. He was inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame. He was one of the first people inducted into the Internet Hall of Fame in 2012. And in 2015, he was awarded the prestigious Marconi Prize. So these were three major technical prizes. He got a lot of other political awards, but I think they were less significant. I I just pulled out the ones that I felt were most significant. He died January 8, 2020. From a brain tumor at age 86. This is why I I found him because he he just actually, passed away. He just passed away a few days ago. Okay, Caucasus. Okay. Or Caucasia is an area situated between the Black and Caspian Seas, mainly occupied by Armenian, Azerbaijani, Georgia, and Russia. It is home to the Caucasus Mountains, including the Greater Caucasus Mountain Range which has historically been considered a natural barrier between Eastern Europe and Western Asia. Okay. There that, you go. Uh, there you go. Well, very good. So he was providing uh, satellite-based Internet to that area back in the Sounds day. Sounds like they needed it. That's right. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Peter Thomas Kirsten. Excellent. I hope you were paying attention because we are going to ask you some questions that yeah. could uh, definitely right. result in you um, winning some prizes here. Free food from Tech Talk Radio. Stand by for the pop quiz on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 104.5 in Loudoun County, the home of Tech Talk Radio. We will be back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Ah, uh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, please be seated. They're settling I, down, they're well uh, behaved. Please, please be seated, yes. Oh, I had a question today. Some people came for frog legs because last week we had, frog legs. We had the twitching frog legs. So that, out. that was a special last week. It was uh, a special last week. For and the, invention, the invention of the battery. We have no frog legs today. And I, I understand they're a delicacy during New Year, so yes. maybe you can't find them anywhere right no, now. No, they got to stock up. We're going to have to do it. So, so I'm yeah. sorry to, to, to disappoint maybe, the uh, Maybe next week. Maybe next week. So this is not simply a radio show. This no. is a classroom of the airways. Yes. And if you get the right answer to our pop quiz to show that you were listening... You win tickets to fine dining, and you'll also get an A-plus for today's session. Earlier in the show, I talked about Peter Thomas Kirsten. He, of course, is father of the European Internet. And he's particularly proud of the fact that he created an email address for a particular head of state. And this head of state sent the first email by any head of state in the world. Who might that head of state been? If you know the answer to today's question, well, now's the time to stop dilly-dallying, pick up your device, and give us a call. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're not Meghan Markle and you're sending an email to <laughs> Queen Elizabeth in Canada, That's a bit of call a mess. us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the completely undependable and clunky international line, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church. Yeah, so let's talk about a critical security warning for Firefox users. Yes. The Department of Homeland Security... Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has issued a notification that encourages users and administrators to update the Mozilla Firefox web browser. Now, the Mozilla Foundation that makes Firefox published a security advisory on January 8th. 
This advisory addressed a critical zero-day vulnerability that has been exploited in the wild. They have evidence of exploitation. Hmm. A zero-day vulnerability is referred to as zero-day and is simply a security vulnerability that is not known by the product vendor or security researchers but is known to threat actors who then exploit it without anyone preventing them. The Mozilla Foundation describes this vulnerability as being due to incorrect alias information in the Ion Monkey just-in-time compiler. Now that's another okay. that's another high thing that you can really use at a cocktail party. The to Ion, get yourself all the chips and dip you want. Yeah, the Ion Monkey JIT compiler. That's a, the Ion Monkey just in time compiler, <laughs> and it sets the array elements, and it could lead to a what they call a type confusion, where you don't know whether it's going to be what type of variable it is. Is it uh, alphanumeric? Is it um, is it floating point? Is it fixed point? And when there's a confusion in the type of the variable. It could trigger a logical errors because the resources are not allocated to the proper properties, and that allows you to have storage in out-of-bounds memory areas. And when you store in an out-of-bounds memory area, it turns out that other pieces of the code pick up that code, and it allows you to take over the machine. So, Ion Monkey just-in-time compiler. Yes, I need this. You need this absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, this vulnerability has been patched by Firefox in the 72.0.1 update. <laughs> this should be installed immediately. So if you're using Firefox, go up in the left-hand corner, go about, and make certain that you've got the 72.0.1. And if not, make certain that that update is installed. Andrew is processing our winner. Hang on a second. Andrew is – oh, it's going to take Andrew a few minutes. Is it? How is this going to – Okay. We'll just do. We'll just do it this way, Doc. Okay. In in um in uh you know trying to be expedient about things. Yes, indeed. Caller, line one, sign in, please. Hello. Hello. Hi. What, who is this? Is this? Lewis. Lewis. Happy New Year, Lewis. Doctor Shirts. Thank Shirts. you. Happy New Year to you guys. Well, Thank you, sir. Thank Dr. You so Schertz, much. go ahead and ask the question. Yes, early, the show, early in the show, we talked about Peter Thomas Kirsten, of course. He's the father of the European Internet, and he created an email address for which head of state? The Queen of England. That is correct. That is Queen correct. Elizabeth. Very good. Lewis, hang on a second. We are going to send you back over to Andrew because we're all about bureaucracy here. And it's the same queen that we've got now. She's been hanging around for the longest time. I was thinking 76 it had to be. She was only about 90 years old back then. So, yeah, okay. So we're going to send you back over to Andrew, who will take your information, (laughs) and we will send that prize out to you forthwith. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County exclusively on 104.5 FM. Watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device. Follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm going to talk about the software utility of the week. Okay. Notebook Plus Plus. Mm. Notebook Plus Plus. I actually use Notebook Plus Plus every weekend. When I write the podcast file for Tech Talk. Interesting. And we use that. It's written in extensible markup language, XML. And so every weekend, I update our podcast file so we can upload the latest uh, podcast for our listeners. We're on Apple iTunes. We're on the Stratford. If you go to the Stratford University site, you can sign up for the podcast there. We're on Stitcher. And we're on all, you're probably on five or six, seven different podcast locations. And they all use that original podcast file. So the thing I like about Notebook++ Plus Plus is that it's a lot better than the Notepad. See, Windows has Notepad, and I used to use Notepad for writing this XML file, but, but Notepad, I mean, it, it only has one undo, one, uh, one level of undo, for instance. You can't, ha- you know, you cannot, um, it doesn't number the lines. So one time I had an error in my XML file, and they said, well, it's on line 256. Well, that was just a pain in the neck to go down there and, and count down 256, you know, because be, before I upload the podcast file, I'll, I'll put it through an error check or just not that I make mistakes, but just to be no, certain. No, no, it, it, no, 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 I, no I, I, never. certainly don't want to admit anything like that. No, we would never do that. Exactly. But but occasionally there's a there's a bit flip due to cosmic radiation. Bit flip, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and and there and there tends to, and there and then there would be a bit flip error in the in the and then I like to pick it up and it tells me what line it's on. That's great that you can do that. That's right. Because so, those are the only errors that ever happened. So a long time ago I switched over to the free Notepad replacement called Notepad. Oh, it's not Notebook, it's Notepad++. Now, no, it does everything the standard Notepad does, only better. It, you know, it, it has unlimited undo. <laughs> That's why it's plus plus. Yeah, it has unlimited undo, which means you can just back up and undo, 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 undo. It's very nice. It has tabbed documents, so you can have like multiple documents open. You just switch between them and go into tab. It's got a spell checker, which is really nice. That's I mean, cool. no, Notepad doesn't have a smell, spell checker. It's got, it does have a smell checker. Yeah, it's got line. It's got line numbering. That's what I love. It's got line ah. numbering. It also, when I put in hypertext markup language, it, it changes the color. So if I'm if I've got a, a tag which is like misformed, or if I'm missing a tag, it will show that to me just with color coding. So it makes it very easy to sort of double check for any obvious error. So I've been using Notepad plus plus 
for many years to create the XML podcast file, and I love it. So you can download it. Simply go to notepad-plus-plus.org, or you can just search for Notepad++, and you go to it. Download it. It's a free download. I love that program. Software Utility of the Week. Perfect. Let's talk about a ransomware attack that caused a worldwide disruption for TravelX. Now, TravelX is a money exchange, and it, and it created a worldwide disruption early morning on New Year's Eve. Now, the attack attributed by the company insiders was to ransomware. It disrupted communications across the company. It left outlets in the U.K. and other countries unable to take payments from foreign currency using credit card or debit cards. The incident caused chaos for customers. Many of them complained on social media when they were unable to top up their TravelX currency cards, confirm transactions that had taken place, or to check their balances. On January 2nd, TravelX websites in Europe, including UK, Belgium, Holland, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Middle East and China, either did not respond or showed error message. U.S. and Canada were unaffected. Mm. TravelX said in a system that it discovered a software virus had compromised its services on New Year's Eve, and as a precautionary measure and to protect the data and prevent the spread of the virus, it took off all systems in order to isolate the virus. One person familiar with the incident said the company's IT systems had been infected with malware known as ransomware, which is used by cyber criminals to maliciously encrypt data on computer systems unless the company agrees to pay a ransom. Now, the company staff at TravelX Outlets, they, they, they could do things with cash. You go in there with cash, and they could write you a manual receipt. Um, communication between TravelX Outlets and other parts of the businesses, uh, which were normally conducted through email, were disrupted, and employees were receiving limited information by phone. Now, this also affected all the financial institutions that use TravelX, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Lloyds Banking Group, Barclays, HC, HSBC were among more than a dozen major banks having problems on New Year's Eve. Uh, but they're now gradually bringing things back online, and I don't think they're going to have to pay any ransomware. But this is an ongoing problem, and I can tell you with all of this cyber threat coming on from North Korea and from Iran, one of the major targets are financial institutions because they can really create havoc within a country, and, and they also tend to be easier to hit than, say, defense installations. Interesting. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu and watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about some of those award-winning devices at the Computer Electronics Show. This time we're going to talk about making water from air. This was created by the tech company WaterGen, and their device is called Jenny. Jenny is a water from air system that taps into atmospheric water using a patented heat exchange technology. The unit can produce up to 30 liters of potable water for home or office every day. WaterGen's built-in blower draws air into the system. They pass through an air filter, and then it's directed to the genius heat exchange and cooling process, and then you get water condensed from the air. The water's filtered again to remove impurities and add minerals, resulting in fresh, drinking-quality water. Now, the company said it's set its sights on expanding its renewable and energy efficiency clean water to 2.4 billion people worldwide who lack access to safe water at home. Last year, the company's large-scale, a large-scale system was delivered to authorities in Brazil, Vietnam, and India. In India. The large-scale version of Genie can produce 5,000 liters of clean water a day, requiring no infrastructure other than a standard electric supply. According to the company's website, it's perfect for villages, off-the-grid settlements, and factories. Now, the the basic unit, uh, which is for home use, is just 30 liters of potable water a day. The thing that's important about this particular device was highly energy efficient. So you could operate it with with solar cells. You could operate it off the grid, and you could then get water. And one of the biggest problems in developing countries is is the lack of clean water. And that's that's a source of, of disease. Uh, just traveling through the through the village, and this is a major breakthrough. And this won top top awards at the um, computer electronics show. They also assisted. They they sent some of their uh, uh, large units out to California during the during the wildfires to provide clean water to the residents in uh, in California when when they were when they were when they had no water available because of the wildfires. They also sent it to residents of Texas Texas and Florida in the aftermath of the uh, hurricanes of Harvey and Irma. So this company's been around doing good things, and it was one of the bright spots at the Computer Electronics Show. Interesting. Ring employees have been fired for watching customer videos. <laughs> okay, now, 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 now this, uh, is, this is a I problem. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> this is a problem. You know, you, you put your video, you, you put up webcams in the house, you, 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 you hook them up to companies like Amazon or Google mm-hmm. or Apple. A number, there are a number of them. And, and then you just assume that it's private. But it turns out that no, no matter how secure the, the company's uh, servers are, people, employees within the company can actually look at those videos. And so, and this is actually a problem. And so what, what happened was uh, 
uh, Ring, which is owned by Amazon, was checking out, you know, the viewing of the of the uh, videos, and they observed that some of the Ring employees were watching certain videos far too often. <laughs> Far too often. I'm assuming that these ring cameras were placed in compromising yes, situations. Yes, and they were, they, and they, and it was, and they were attempting access that went beyond what they needed <laughs> for their job. <laughs> this is what happened. Oh man, so that's once, just sick. So once Amazon discovered that, they fired those workers. Good and call. They've, and they've taken steps to limit access to a smaller number of people. Now at Ring, only three people have access to customer videos. Probably that's really? down from thousands. Yeah. It's down to three people. And and now, also, Ring had a problem with people breaking into to users' accounts. And so Ring has implemented a number of security features. I talked about this on an earlier show, where now they are forcing new signups to use two-factor authentication. So even if somebody gets your password, if they don't have your cell phone, they're, they're not going to be able to log in because they won't have the code that's sent to your cell phone. They won't have the second factor to authenticate. So there you go. I really don't have many video cameras in the in the house Good because idea. of this basic problem. <laughs> so just don't run around outside naked. No, in I'm front a, of your ring camera. I'm very yeah. No, don't do that. You're very but, conservative. You'd I'm, never do that. No, never, never, no, never. never. Now, Ever. Duck Duck Go mm-hmm. and Infocom are now default choices on the Android in Europe. Okay, if you remember. Google back in 2018 was fined $5 billion by the European Union for antitrust violations in the Android relating to the operating system and its default search engine. So what happened was that Android phones were sold in Europe. You had no choice but to use the Google search engine. Mm -hmm. So EU said, look, that's an antitrust violation, and they fined Google $5 billion, which they paid. Now, following the rule, Google unveiled a plan to bring Android back into compliance by offering alternative search engines. And they came up with a very good idea. They auctioned off the right. So they went, if they said, we're going to put up another search engine, we're going to make money. So they had a sealed bid auction in each country, and different search engines would bid on the right to be in the Android phone. And so Google made a lot of money auctioning off the rights to, to have the search engine on the Android phone. And it turned out that two search engines won in all the countries because they, they were going to put three alternative search engines on the Android phone, and two of them were the same in all the countries. DuckDuckGo and Info.com were the two search engines that won. Now, DuckDuckGo has been, has been very famous. They, they say, we... We value your privacy, so DuckDuckGo does not store your searches and use it to get a profile of you as a user, whereas Google stores every search you've ever made, and they can tell a lot about you by your searches. So, I mean, people will search for diseases. They'll search for all kinds of stuff, and they can tell exactly what your profile is by with the kind of things you search for. Mm-hmm. And they store that, and they sell that information to people. DuckDuckGo says, look, we honor your privacy. We don't store anything. So a lot of people that are worried about privacy use DuckDuckGo. So just go to DuckDuckGo.com, and boom, you've got it. Now, Info.com is, a, is what they call a meta search engine. It aggregates the results of other search engines and provides a better overall picture of the results. So it might... It might, you might do a search through info.com and it will go out to five search engines 
and it will consolidate their results, organize the data so it's better presented for you. And then, they'll, of course, they'll sell ads, which is where, how they make money. Now, the third option would vary by country, and it was usually language-specific. But those two are the ones, and I think that DuckDuckGo. I just like that name, DuckDuckGo. You Duck do Go. like that name. Yeah, DuckDuckGo. That is going to be a very good option for people. Um, I have we have a question from WT Fubar. Okay, and he wanted to know the, the Notebook Plus Plus. It's made by it's made by Windows, right? I don't think it's a Windows. Do you know who made made it? No. Okay. I, yeah, no, it's note notepad. It's Notepad Plus Plus. Notepad Plus. It's it's Notepad Plus. So if plus. you go, you can download the link Notepad dash plus dash plus dot yeah, org. That's right. how you would find yeah, it. Yeah, and it's 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 not it's not a Microsoft product. Ah, okay. Now let me just see. Well, I think if I think with that URL that that should help them find. Yeah, it. I think it's Notepad plus plus dot org, and I I oh it's the author. It's uh it's uh you know it's shareware, and it's written by Don Ho. <laughs> I've been wondering what he's been up to. Don I haven't Ho. heard him singing lately. So yeah, he's, he's out in, uh, in he's out in Hawaii <laughs> developing software. What a change of career! I think this is a different Don Ho. Probably. He says, "Contact me. No support request. No bug report. Plus, only praise and worship." <laughs> That's what he says on <laughs> his. Funny. Contact. That's what it says on my contacts. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, no, it's not. It's not a micro- Microsoft product. It's okay. uh, it's shareware, but it's wonderful. Okay, we uh, let's talk about SIM swappers. Yes. Now, SIM swappers are uh, a problem, and, and and I'll tell you why this is a problem, and particularly for people that have you know cryptocurrency accounts. See, when you set up two-factor authentication, you say you're going to send the second factor to my cell phone. Now, the idea is that well, you would have your cell phone. But what people are doing, particularly people that have SIM cards in the cell phone that, that are using GSM, they'll go to the telecom guy and they'll convince them that they lost their phone and they'll get them to switch the SIM card number to another telephone. Hmm. So once they do that, the person could go onto the website if they have the password and they get two-factor authentication. The second factor comes to now the wrong cell phone because they have hijacked the SIM card connection, and they can steal the account. So this has become a big problem, especially in cyber, cyber, um, you know, cryptocurrency. And so SIM swappers are using remote control desktops at telecom. Now that what they're doing, see, all your your Windows computer, they have what they call a remote desktop protocol, which lets somebody log on remotely. Now what happens is that they'll let they'll go to a telecom and they'll get they'll log on remotely. And then they'll take it over and they'll switch the SIM card without even asking the person. But we'll talk about that next week a okay. little bit more. For All right. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And what we're going to do is uh, we'd like you to go to the Stratford University website, check out our programs, tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.